this week on Life and Faith. I was in Thessalonica and it's a tiny regional airport. I was just waiting for my bags and baggage claim. And as I looked up just on the poles, there was all of these posters of these missing women, missing children. There were just so many of them that I couldn't ignore it. The systems that we trust in to know have broken down. You know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house. But I've learned that even when it doesn't go well, I can be okay. What's the best way to understand the world and to live in it? This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And today I'm speaking with Kristen Kane who is an author, a very popular speaker, and an activist, among other things. She's also the co-founder and now chief advocate of A21, which is an organisation that exists to fight against modern slavery. Now, this was a big focus of our conversation, but woven into A21, in fact, crucial to that unfolding story, is Christine's personal story, and the way her own significant challenges opened her up to a life of speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. Christine is an Aussie, you'll be able to tell that, but she lives with her family in the US these days and has done for a number of years. I love this conversation and Christine's passion, humour and energy for the cause as she fights for justice. Now this interview is part of our CPX conversation series on Facebook and YouTube. I recommend those to you. We've had Andy Crouch, Justine Toe and Mark Stevens so far. You can catch up on those. But we couldn't have had our podcast listeners miss out on Christine Kane. So here she is. And I began by asking her about living in the US, anything she had to adjust to and the best parts of that experience. A couple of the challenges were, you know, uh, watching things like the World Series baseball and the sort of world started in Seattle. It went across to New York, down to Miami and stopped at L.A. And I was like, wow, World Series. okay, and the World Super Bowl. So some of those things, um, you know, I found a little bit difficult to get used to. But I love it. I travel in and out of here a lot. I mean, this last year, obviously, because of COVID, uh, I've been in this country for um, solidly for a year. So it's the first time that I've actually really felt that I've lived here, even though I moved 10 years ago, uh, because, you know, we have 19 A21 offices all around the world. So I've always just been in and out. And so it was really different actually being here 365 days a year for a year. Um, Us Aussies are a little bit more laid back, I think. And uh, I miss that. Someone asked me the other day, what do you miss most about Australia? I said, oh man, just uh, not having um, people that get my sense of humour, people that are not going to be offended because, you know, we're just a little bit cynical down under. We're a little bit, you know, (laughs) we've just got to, and I, I tend to offend people here with what I think is really funny. And you would think, is really funny, Simon, but a lot of people here don't think it's funny. Yeah, well, so good to, to talk to you. I do want to talk to you about A21. Now, there are there's a few organisations now in this space, now, isn't there? And I, I guess that's a reflection, really, of, of this is a very serious, real problem now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I think when I say it, it probably always has been, it's just there's more and more people becoming yeah. aware of that, which is uh, – Crucial, and you know the truth is, uh, we need um, all of the organisations that are involved because when yeah. you're talking, uh, I think current statistics are up to 40 million slaves, depending on how you measure that. But 40 million slaves in the world today, 
you know, um, there is a lot of work to be done um, and we need all hands on deck in different capacities to stop this. Now, Simon, I'm, I'm going to say right from the outset, um, I'm one of those hope-filled people because I'm like there's 40 million slaves and 7.8 billion people in the world. So to actually, you know, we have a, a statement um, at A21, it says let's abolish slavery everywhere forever. Some people roll their eyes, but I'm like, this is not rocket science. There's 7.8 billion people and 40 million slaves. Do the math. If we awaken enough people to this and then we are prepared to change our lives um, a little bit, I think we can actually get this job done. Yeah, I was struck by that. The, the, it's a very bold statement, kind of idealistic in a way, but it's good to hear that you, you actually think this is achievable and you're working towards that. But Let's come back to some of that in a moment, but tell us how it started because I think that's an interesting story. And like many of us, you were not initially, you know, aware of how serious this problem was. But what was it that captured you to the extent that you wanted to not just, you know, contribute something but start an organisation? Sure. You know, and let me just uh, go back even one step that it wasn't that I was – unaware of the enormity of the problem. I was just unaware that it existed. So I'm sure some people that are going to be watching this and listening to us, um, this is going to be new to them. And this is what, you know, for, for those of us that have been in the space for a long time, it's easy to assume that everybody knows uh, about human trafficking, modern day slavery, whatever language um, you want to use it. But I found most people actually don't know that it exists. They're just like I was 14 years ago. 14 years ago, I didn't know this existed. I was about to speak at a conference in a, a, a town in the north of Greece called Thessaloniki, Thessalonica. Uh, there's, uh, I'm Greek-Australian, so if I say Greek words, yeah. they're going to have the Greek. No, no, you, and we'll defer to you for the pronunciation <laughs> so for sure. I, uh, I was in Thessalonica, and as I was waiting, it's a tiny regional airport. I was just waiting for my bags in baggage claim. And as I looked up, just on the poles, there was all of these posters of these missing women, missing children. There were just so many of them that I couldn't ignore it. I'm like, you know, and, and of course, I've advocated for women for decades. So I'm looking at that. I was at the time I was 40 years old. Um, I had just had my second child. And as I was looking at all of these faces of all of these children, wondering what was going on, I saw a little girl about the same age as one of my daughters, and her name was Sophia, which was the same name as my one of my daughters. And this is, Simon, I guess this is probably the way that I could tell people, for me, how it happened. I would say that's when, you know, the seed for what is now this global anti-trafficking organization, this is where it was planted. I looked and I, I went in that moment from looking at someone else's missing child to seeing what could have been my own daughter. And you know, Simon, when you look at anything in the world, you can look away, but when you see, you can never really unsee. And that's the difference. And I think at that moment, so that was in, I think about 2006, 2007 was when I first became aware. A21 didn't start till 2008, but that was where the journey began. Uh, because I knew nothing about it. I went on, my friend was the um, deputy director of UNICEF and she went on to explain to me that this was these were the alleged victims of human trafficking, to which my response was, what do you mean human trafficking? That can't still happen. We've got the Emancipation Proclamation Act. We've got the Freedom from Slavery Act. You know, we had William Wilberforce. We're like, you know, this, this does not happen. And um, 
I'm sure people watching this today think exactly the same thing. Like, what do you mean? Uh, we think since the transatlantic slave trade was uh, it was eradicated that somehow this doesn't happen. Modern day slavery looks different, but there are actually more slaves in the world today than ever before in the history of humanity. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? And, yes. And I'm really struck by the the kind of the humanity of it, and the the what the the description there of when you see the face and kind of connect with that person, all of a sudden it's no longer a statistic. You're you're engaged. I love how you say that. You know, my own birth certificate. And I think this is where it gets a little bit personal for me. Is um, <clears throat> you know, I found out at 33 that I was born. Um, I was born in Crown Street Women's Hospital down there, downtown Sydney. Uh, but I was left in the hospital unnamed and unwanted. My birth certificate actually doesn't have a name on it. It says child's name, unnamed, number 2508 mm. of 1966. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, Simon, that the numbers, like I say 40 million slaves. And if you're listening to this, it's easy to switch off because numbers are numbing. Numbers are, are dehumanizing, they're desensitizing. And the, and the truth is, it's so easy to ignore suffering when it's nameless or faceless. But the minute you put a name or a face on a number, like if I said to you, number 2508 of 1966, you just kind of go, okay. But the minute you go, Christine Kane, yeah. it, it just, it changes. And so not one of these 40 million slaves is just a number. And here is the deal, Simon. You know, I'm, I'm the daughter of Greek immigrants. And um, if I was not born in Sydney, Australia in 1966, where there was a rule of law and a, um, a proper adoption system set in place, I, I this is how close I am to the kids that I'm helping to rescue. I'm only one degree of separation because if I was born in perhaps Albania or Romania or even in the north of Greece where I was and, you know, my parents were Greek immigrants, I could be one of the very children that I am helping to rescue today. Um, oftentimes it's a number, but many times we're just one or two degrees of separation from this. And I find often that if something, you know, it was the girl's name, Sophia, that grabbed my attention. And then as I began to read the stories and I saw my own stories, I could no longer ignore this. I had to do something. As I listen to that story, I'm, I'm interested in the, the notion of calling, feeling a call to do something and the way in which your own experiences play into that. And you've described that really well. Is this something you have felt, felt the calling for? Yeah, I, I could say that now. I can't mm. say that like when I was young. I, but I will say that I've always sensed a, a, a calling, whatever language you want to put on that, for for matters of justice. I remember, mm. you know, uh, I think part of that could also be tied into growing up in uh, Blacktown in Sydney, Australia, uh, the only Greek ethnic minority immigrant you know it, when, yeah. it, things are very different in australia now but in the 1970s yeah. when i was growing up the 1980s we were extremely marginalized uh, being yeah. part of the greek community extremely marginalized um because of our ethnicity and it was really hard it was very very difficult so i knew what it was like yeah. to be marginalized to be left out to not be part of mainstream culture to be overlooked to be ignored those those feelings are visceral to me. I think finding out at 33 that I, I was adopted, that I wasn't who I thought I was, um, again, was uh, deeply formative in helping, you know, to form who I am today. I mean, when to find out that 
your entire history is not what you thought it was, that your entire family is not what you thought it was. It can be extremely destabilizing. And again, when you tie this into perhaps, I'll add one other component to that. And of course, I was the victim of sexual abuse for about 12 years when I was a child. So when you now look at the survivors that we're helping, um, of course, sexual abuse is a huge component of uh, that story. Marginalization, being overlooked, being ignored, being abandoned. I could just see how many fragments of my own story um, have worked. What could have actually destroyed me? I've seen some of those things turned around and they're used to fuel me, hopefully from a, a healthy place, to really be able to make a difference in the world. But um, wanting, I, I think so from when I was a kid, I remember it being at Blacktown High School and there was just a couple of us immigrants, ki immigrant kids and I just knew things weren't right. I didn't have language on it around it back then, um, but I, I knew when I grew up and had agency, I wanted to be in a position where I could help kids like me that were marginalised and, and, and help people find a voice and help people know their value. So I, I think part of that was my immigrant experience. I think coming from an abuse background, my heart was always towards the victimized and the marginalized. It was just a, a natural outflow. And then I think just the abandonment, the adoption is just another thread when you see all of those things uh, woven together, it kind of makes sense. And I think sometimes um, your greatest calling can come out of some of your hardest experiences in your life. Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Christine Kane, co-founder and now chief advocate for the anti-slavery organisation A21. As you heard, this started when Christine was bowled over, not just by the scale of human trafficking today, but that it existed at all. A21 has grown and evolved, and I wanted to know more about its approach and its various activities. We have a three-pronged approach, which is to reach the vulnerable to rescue the victim and to restore the survivors. And so you're talking, that's everything from, you know, um, creating programs, and we have so many that, that truly reach hundreds of millions of people around the world. We have programs like Can You See Me campaign, which reaches the vulnerable. Um, we have everything from movies on showing people uh, how trafficking exists. If you go to airports around the world, Sydney, UK, all around the world, um, you will see films uh, that we have made, short films in baggage claim or posters in baggage claim called Can You See Me? Helping you to identify the victims of trafficking in plain sight with hotline numbers to help people go. Like I stood there in 2006 or seven, and I didn't know what to do. Yeah. But now we're putting, you can stand at a baggage claim at Heathrow Airport and there's, you've got to watch something go, oh, wow. Oh, I think I saw something. There's a number to call. I mean, we're trying to constantly put practical things in people's hands. We have set up national hotlines um, in five countries around the world. We have a Bodies Are Not Commodities. It's an education program um, where we start from kindergarten level because in some countries this is such a part of the culture that you've got to change the mindsets right from um, early education to teach people that bodies are not commodities to be yeah. bought and sold um, in about 35 countries in the world from the Ukraine to Greece to Bulgaria, uh, 
this program operates in schools, teaching, taking people through just the, the value of human beings and that bodies are not commodities. And I think that's something we are, are really, really excited about. That helps education, prevention, awareness. We have a global walk for freedom that will, happens every year. Um, we, of course, 2020, uh, it didn't happen because of um, COVID. But uh, 2019, we had 553 walks in uh, 59 countries around the world. It's kind of like um, the, the new year where it starts in New Zealand, uh, and then for 24 hours, it goes country to country, all around, people walking in single file through major cities around the world, every major city around the world, which is a great awareness and prevention mm-hmm. uh, a thing, lots of things like that. You can see that. And then we have obviously our restoration program. We have freedom centers in several countries around the world and probably our aftercare is what we would be most known for. Um, some of the programs we have to work with survivors that are all trauma-informed and survivor-led uh, programs that we've uh, cultivated over the last several years um, have just been, have really helped to restore holistically uh, the survivor. Um, and of course, you know, survivors have been trapped and when they're trafficked, um, the last thing they want to do is be kept held in another home in some sort of program. So we have, um, we really help with um, helping them to get set up in independent housing, have freedom centers that they could come to every day to help with education, job skills, of course, all of their physical, their medical, their emotional needs uh, being met. And so that holistic approach um, means that uh, our statistics in terms of um, victims being re re-victimized or survivors going back into trafficking is comparatively so low because we're really setting them up um, to to win and move forward and a lot yeah. of our programs uh, we are getting so much input from survivor-led organizations that have been so helpful it's an amazing amount of activity but it's obviously a complex yeah. problem it needs a complex solution and, and i love yes. that i think it's a very um it's, you know, I've noticed this in lots of aid uh, activity now where there's this recognition that it's not just a matter of turning up and handing out money or food or whatever. There's a complex sort of, whole, as you say, holistic uh, a need and approach that's required. And in this situation, even more, as you, as you described that, I can see why all of those steps are, are needed. Has it given you, like, are there good stories that have come out of this? Like, is it, have you sort of felt... <laughs> encouraged by what's been able you've been able to achieve as an organization oh yeah i mean i i wish we had like three hours i need everyone to go to a21.org and Absolutely. have a look at um survivor stories because it will inspire you yeah. to go it does make a difference sometimes you go it does are we really making a difference but i could tell i i could keep you i could tell you about survivors that have come out and um one in particular that is a um, graduating from university um you know uh, uh, some of these countries i won't talk about but the, yeah. but we have got uh, survivors that have come through and you know they had dreams and when they went to certain countries under the guise they thought they were going to work and get jobs and uh, they were tricked and you know sold into slavery so their dreams turned into nightmares well it's a great joy to be able to restore those dreams and go you know i i know um that there was that devastation but again there's that redemption piece and um seeing them fulfill dreams that they had to become nurses well we've got i, I could tell 
several that have come through different um, university programs, a nurse, a psychologist, um, a social worker, and, and again, with most of them, they want to give back and serve. Um, mm. So many stories of um, young women coming out and starting their own businesses. We have a very um, a, a great, robust sort of entrepreneurial program for them to be a, a social enterprise program to start um, businesses and to watch them flourish. And um, I could tell you stories of... Uh, you know, survivors that have come out and gotten married and started families. And you would not have thought this would be possible mm. after the trauma that they had encountered. Um, so across, you know, from education to jobs, lots of restoration uh, with their children. Uh, you know, we do a lot of legal representation and the amount of uh, mothers that have been separated from their children and just the complexities when you've crossed borders and the, the legal process to restore uh, families is a huge thing. I mean, there's just story after story. So uh, there is not, uh, not even a week, there's not a day that doesn't go by that there isn't a story. I mean, we're in 16 countries, there's 19 offices. So there's stories from children as young as 18 months old to we had a, a case of forced labor um, up in Bulgaria, uh, you know, several men um, all in their 60s. So, you know, I could, in, in any week, it's from an 18-month-old child to... People in the late 60s, forced labor, sex trafficking, forced begging, um, domestic servitude. I mean, it, it, it's just yeah. nonstop. Um, but there's, you hear the rescues, you hear the restoration, and it gets you out of bed for another day. I bet it does. Now, tell me, though, no, what, what has this for you sort of taught you about the human heart, the human condition? Because there's a very dark side to this story too, isn't there? Very. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, I don't know. I say to people, people that say to me, Christina, you know, I don't believe that there's evil or I don't believe there's a hell or I don't believe there's a devil or, you know, whatever in that category. Yeah. I think, well, you obviously have never worked in um, helping to abolish slavery because five minutes into this, you know, reading some of the reports that I read that I could never publicly put, you know, it, it yeah. would just so traumatise people. Um, the only way that I can reconcile that kind of depravity um, and the kind of evil that human beings would subject other human beings to is to, to for in my paradigm, there has to be a dark side. There, there has yeah. to, there is evil, there is a devil <laughs> and there is a hell because it's, um, it, it is so dark, so dark, that underbelly that drives this, whether, um, which of course is, you know, sex, power, money, greed, lust, all, all, you know, the, all of the things that um, and cruelty, we'd love to like just the... cover up, but it's there. Oh, it's so evil and cruel. And, yeah. and just the, 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 that one human being could do that physically to another human being is, is beyond comprehension. Yeah. Now, I wonder how your faith has kind of informed and shaped uh, your approach to this to this work, and also how you processed it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think for me personally, uh, my faith undergirds my approach to it all. Um, because of my faith in Jesus, I see and recognise um, 
what I believe to be the innate image of God in every person, wherever they're from, whatever their, you know, uh, their nationality, their religion, their socioeconomic background, their ethnicity, their race, their culture. Um, I believe that every human being is created in the image of God. And I think as that starting point, it means then every human being um, should have access to fundamental human rights. No human being should be bought and sold and used uh, for the pleasure or be exploited uh, you know, by another human being. And so when you say, where does my faith tie into this? My faith is the whole reason I believe all of this and, um, and will certainly spend my life to continue to you know, reach the vulnerable, to rescue the victim and to restore the survivor. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your gender is, your ethnicity is, your socioeconomic background is, what your uh, faith belief system is or isn't. Uh, it, um, every human being has the right to freedom. And I think we should all, uh, this, is, this is certainly a humanitarian issue that whatever your background is, I think we can all get behind and work together. And I find that's why we can work in countries. Uh, you know, I work in... Uh, in the Middle East, we work in Southeast Asia, we work across Asia, South America, Africa, um, up throughout Europe, and there's people of all different faith systems. Um, and yet the one thing we can all agree on is that this is wrong. And um, for me, the reason I find that it is wrong is uh, it, my faith informs that. Yeah, it's, and I think that's wonderful how you've expressed the, the way in which this is a, a human problem. And so your faith is driving your activity, but it includes and welcomes and, and brings in people of all sorts of you know, beliefs and none, presumably. Well, tell us, uh, you are a very passionate Bible teacher and promoter of Christian faith, though. So I want to ask you, this is a slightly uh, different question. What, what is your sense of what people in the secular West think Christian faith is about? And how different is that from what you want people to know? Yeah, that's a, gr a great question. I think particularly at this um, time in history, uh, I think there's a lot of mixed feelings towards what Christian faith may or may not be. Um, you know, yeah. I, I think I, I grew up in an era before there was an internet or a social media. So I think maybe people might have had a better idea of what the Christian faith was. I think um, it's a free-for-all out there now. And so depending on what's come across your screen, uh, the kind of people you follow on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter will pretty much determine what you think of the Christian faith. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's been a lot of negativity. Uh, people professing perhaps to be Jesus followers have not necessarily represented the Jesus of the gospel, um, the Jesus of the gospels uh, in the scriptures in the way that would truly reflect uh, his beauty and his love and his grace and his goodness and his kindness. And um, I, I would sort of say to people, uh, don't go looking for Jesus on social media. Go, go to the Bible, <laughs> go to the Gospels and see for yourself um, that, that, you know, yeah, that's that. what I'm thinking. Like I, I keep trying to say, don't even listen to me. Go straight to the book. <laughs> and um, there is just so much confusion out there. I think the world is so divided. There's so much chaos. Uh, there's so much anger. Um, and a fear is what drives anger. You know, we're living in a global pandemic. We're uh, living in political upheaval, economic upheaval, sociological upheaval. And when there's upheaval and change, fear is the response. And when fear is the response, people just vent out of fear. And I think that's what we're seeing on social media. So we are seeing 
the worst sides of a lot of people right now. And I think five years from now, a lot of people are going to think, I wish I never did that. And can we just eradicate all of that? Um, (laughs) So I keep trying to say to people, please, um, if you're coming to really want to examine who is this Jesus, um, go to the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and read for yourself who this man is. And he is someone that so radically changed my life. He took this unnamed unwanted, abused, adopted girl from the back of Sydney, Australia. And, um, you know, not only saved me and healed me, um, but then he's given me the awesome opportunity to be able to give back into this world and to uh, promote his goodness and his justice. He so radically changed my life that I want everyone to know it. And you said, you know, you're a, I'm a very vocal proponent of the Christian faith. It's because um, I think when you truly encounter Jesus, not the Christian subculture that we often see out there that is just so divisive and chaotic and it just so misrepresents who Jesus is. But when you truly encounter his love, his grace, his goodness, his kindness, he can, um, it changes everything. So You can have a background like mine and over a process, find healing and restoration. And and my history didn't need to define my destiny, but my past can be used to help other people have a future. And that's the power of the gospel that um, and Jesus, it was his love and his grace and his mercy that has helped bring healing and wholeness to me and has helped 35 years later help me to continue to hopefully uh, do good. And, you know, one of the simple scriptures in the Bible, it says Jesus of Nazareth went about healing many and doing good. And, um, you know, can I just say to you all, if it doesn't sound good, if it doesn't look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, taste like Jesus, it's not Jesus. If it's just junky religion that's very angry and bitter and negative and critical and judgmental and legalistic or just sells out to a system of success and fame and money. And that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels is one full of love and grace and mercy and truth and peace and goodness and kindness. It's not sappy. Um, He'll confront injustice. And that's what puts the fire in my bones to go, no, no, that's not just. And we need to fight for justice. And uh, there's no greater emancipator of people. Um, of the marginalized, of the poor, and of women than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. No greater emancipator on earth. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks so much today to Christine Kane. If you'd like to know more about A21, a recipient of the Mother Teresa Memorial Award, you can go to their website, a21.org, where you can read about and perhaps get involved in their work. Also, if you'd like to check out Christine's several books, including her latest, How Did I Get Here? We'll put a link in the show notes. Please do share this episode with someone you know who might be interested, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at publicchristianity.org and give us some feedback. Next week. Hey, how y'all doing? I'm Ted Lasso, your new coach. You must be Miss Welton. No, please, call me Rebecca. Miss Welton's my father. If that's a joke, I love it. If not, I cannot wait to unpack that with you.